Hi, my name is Kamran Bukhari, founding director with the Center for Global Policy, better known by its acronym CGP. Welcome to another edition of CGP's podcast series, which after three years now has a formal name, The Lodestar. Our team decided on this particular name because it best encapsulates the work that CGP does in terms of providing guidance and direction on issues critical to U.S. national security and international stability. Today, I am sitting with Professor Muqtadir Khan, whom you all know is a senior fellow with the Center for Global Policy and a professor of political science at the University of Delaware. He has recently published uh, his latest book. It's called Islam and Good Governance, A Political Philosophy of Ahsan. And that is the topic of this podcast. Hi, Muqtadir. Hello, Kamran. Thank you for doing this. And why don't we start off with you explaining to our listeners why you wrote this book? What is the message that you wanted to give out? Because there's a lot of work being done on Islam and governance and political philosophy. So what is it that you intended to essentially contribute intellectually through this book? The first thing that I want to share is that this book was prompted by a realization that I have come to after studying the Muslim world and Islamic movements and uh, Islamic history, that I think if there was one single cause or one dominant reason for why the Muslim world is in so much trouble, it is because of bad governance. And therefore, I think that the solution to many of the problems would be to improve the quality of governance not just in Muslim countries, but also in Muslim organizations at the micro level from how we manage our mosques and our civil society institutions and all the way to how we govern and manage our budgets and our defense and also how we think about the future and how we think about the world. So I think that is the first realization that prompted me to write this book, that we need good governance. The other reason why I wrote this book is the awareness that a large segment of Muslims today feel that authenticity in their society can only come through some form of Islam. Without an Islamic uh, awareness, an Islamic component to their identity, there will be an absence of authenticity. And so there is a desire to bring Islam in the public sphere in every society and every country in the Muslim world to some extent. And that has led to some unfortunate experiments in the Muslim world, ranging from ISIS to Al-Qaeda to Islamic states, which have caused tremendous problems to the world as well as to the Muslim countries themselves. However, there is still this energy, there's still this demand that Islam should play a public role. And in this book, I try to articulate a pathway to bringing Islam in the public sphere where it becomes a force for good, a force for compassion, a force for love, rather than a force for conflict and tension within Muslims and among Muslims and non-Muslims. So those are the two reasons why I wrote this book. Do you think that good governance cannot exist without Islam? Because one could argue that there are other non-Muslim civilizations. They're actually doing pretty well. The Western civilization has been doing pretty well in terms of good governance in contrast with the rest of the world. So how do you tie Islam into this? When we talk about politics in the Muslim world, we often hear this phrase, voting by their feet. And so Muslims are voting by their feet in the millions that they would rather live anywhere else but in the Muslim world. The migration out of the Muslim world to non-Muslim societies is huge. 
primarily because, empirically speaking, as a political scientist, it is very easy to conclude that there are many parts of the non-Muslim world where governance is much, much better than in the Muslim world. There are indices which suggest that there is more stability, more prosperity, more tolerance, more freedom, more happiness in many non-Muslim countries, which are either secular or to some extent Christian uh, than Muslim countries. Having said that, when I talk about Islam and good governance, I'm not talking about what most people talk about under this label. Most people are trying to articulate a concept of good governance from what they call an Islamic perspective. They, are, they think that they are trying to Islamize good governance. My point is very simply that I'm trying to talk about good governance in spite of Islam. How can we have good governance in society in spite of having a large segment of the population who wants to bring Islam into the public sphere? When 9-11 happened, there was no doubt in my mind that this was done by Muslims. It was amazing. I remember reacting to it by saying, oh my God, we did it. And I was later on, on reflection, very disturbed by the how I articulated it and said, we did it. I had nothing to do with 9-11. I have nothing in common with those who did it nationality-wise or even in terms of Islamic thinking. But when that happened and then we started condemning it, and I have written a lot of articles condemning what happened and saying this is not true Islam, then it prompted me to ask the question to myself, if Al-Qaeda, ISIS is not true Islam, then what is? And what role can Islam play? And so when I started asking this question, I, it was a difficult journey because I had to look at my own faith and my own beliefs from a very critical perspective. And fortunately, I discovered the concept of Ahsan. Ahsan uh, Translate that for us. The word Ahsan is translated in many ways because it's a very concept term. Some people translate it simply as charity. Some people translate it as compassion. Some people translate it as... Uh, as being generous. Some scholars like William Chittick have argued that the best way to talk about Ehsan is to do beautiful things. So an element of aesthetics also comes. But Ehsan literally means, uh, as Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, described it, Ehsan is means that Ehsan uh, is to worship Allah as if you see him. And if you cannot see him, then recognize that he's seeing you. And I think that is a critical distinction. I also speculate that that is where the Muslims got divided. Those Muslims who aspire to see God in this world tended to become mystical, compassionate, loving, and produce people like Jalaluddin Rumi and Ibn Arabi and Nizamuddin Awliya. People who came up with ideas like khidmat khalq to serve humanity. where they Public service. Yes, universal public service. And in fact, that is because they have translated the term ta'budu as not just to worship, but also to serve God. And understanding that there is a connection between service and worship. But then those who abandoned the idea of seeing God in this world, and rather than being... A witness to God, they thought that God is witnessing them, that God is watching over them. So God became like a big brother who is watching you and waiting for you to do something wrong so he can send you to hell. A punitive God. 
a scary, judgmental, vengeful, angry God waiting for an opportunity to send his own creation to hell. That vision <laughs> created what I see as the Salafi jihadi movements of today. These are people who are afraid that God is watching them and it is out of their fear. that. Is they it have... just the Salafi jihadi or is it beyond that? What no, about I think most groups like the, Muslim Brotherhood? I think the entire Orthodox Islamic perspective is this fear of God, where they even define taqwa as fear of God. They are always talking about fear God, fear God, fear God, and not love God, not love God. So all these organizations, whether it is the jihadi movements or Islamic revivalist movements, they seem to be motivated by fear of God. So the things that we do in this world is out of fear, not out of love. And to me, that is the problem, I think, the core source of it. So even if you practice your faith out of fear, to me, that is not true. True faith. So the idea of Ihsan is to do things out of love for God in order to manifest his goodness in this world. So you just mentioned the word revivalist. And, you know, a companion word could be resurgence. And for decades, you and I have looked at this for most of our professional academic life, this idea of Islamic or Muslim resurgence. Where do you think, where are we in that process? Is that process ended? Because, I mean, if you just look at the Muslim Brotherhood, if you look at Islamists and those who carry the banner of political Islam, they seem like an utter failure. There is one truth in this ideal of Islamic resurgence. And that truth is the recognition that the Muslim world is not a happy place. The fact that we are underdeveloped, the fact that we are less powerful, the fact that other nations and other civilizations can dominate the Muslim world, this recognition is prompting people to revive. It's no different from Trump arguing, let's make America great again. So the Islamists essentially came up with, let's make Islam great again or make the Muslim That's world. an interesting contrast. Yeah, basically that's comparison. the same slogan, let's make Islam great again. In fact, I think it was Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto who actually wrote an article saying Islam was great once, it will be great again. Um, this was when he was an undergraduate, I think, something to that effect. So this idea was... The good thing is that they recognize that the condition of the Muslim world was not something that one can be content about. And so there needed to be reforms. There needed to be development. So this idea of reviving Islam or Islamic civilization became an alternative to talking about development and modernization in the Muslim world. So if we had political scientists and academics and scholars start looking at the Muslim world and saying, what do we need? They said, we need it to develop. It has to develop politically. It has to develop economically, technologically, educationally. So rather than talking about development and progress, we started talking about revival. So that's the thing. The assumption was that we were progressed. We were developed in the past. It was relative. In the past, the Muslim world was more powerful than the rest of the world. It doesn't mean that we have declined. It's quite possible that the rest of the world has developed much faster and therefore is more powerful and more dominant. And I think that is the biggest uh, philosophical mistake the revivalists made. And what is also interesting is by articulating it in terms of return to Islam, what they really mean is return to a particular historically imagined version of Islamic society a constructed notion. Yes, and they assumed that it was great. And I really don't know which time period they imagined this. Uh, I mean, even liberals talk about the golden age of Islam, but it was during the golden age of Islam also that people like Allah were executed. So, so we had this imaginary Islam in all our heads, which was great again. 
because we won some battles some places or maybe because we built the Taj Mahal or we had some philosophers who all can be written about in two or three books. So because of that, we feel that Islam was a great civilization and so we need to go back to it. Rather than focusing on asking ourselves what kind of future we would like for ourselves, a more developed, more tolerant, maybe more democratic or more economically prosperous world. And I think as a political scientist, I realized that a lot of us have allowed our nostalgia for imaginary Islam, which was dominant in the past and which will be dominant in the future, to actually misguide us. And that is why the more we talk about Islam, the more chaos we see in the Muslim world. Today, look at those societies which are governed by so-called Islamists. Look at West Bank, look at Gaza. You can see the contrast, the difference in per capita income, the difference in security, the difference in both are occupied territories. Uh, Islamists will tell you that is because West Bank has surrendered and Gaza has not to Israeli domination. But the point really is if you are a governor of place, your job is to provide welfare to your people and Islamists there have failed. Look at Iran, a global pariah with its resources, with its human resources and natural resources, it could be like a major European power on par with Germany and France if it was not under severe U.S. sanctions. Ideology has undermined their progress. They are confusing ideology for faith. And I think one of the achievements of these revivalist movements is they have reduced Islam to an ideology and reduced Islamization or development and progress to essentially inculcation of identity. Look at how people market Islamic schools in America. Have you ever seen somebody come and say, send your children to the Islamic school and they will be the best mathematicians in the world? Send them to my Islamic schools and we will produce great environmental scientists. Islamic schools in the world will solve the problems of poverty. They never talk about it. That is not the marketing point. What they are telling you is that send your children to the Islamic schools and your daughters will wear hijab and your boys will learn how to speak in Arabic and recite the Quran. It's generating identity. So Islamic revivalism has essentially become something about externality of Muslims. You look Islamic. That's why I sometimes, when I go to Friday prayers, uh, including myself, I think it's like a Halloween party. We are all dressed in fancy dress clothes. Pakistanis dressed like Moroccans, <laughs> Indians dressed like Saudis. We are wearing all the, it looks beautiful, that's fine. But these are all aspirationals of expressing identity. Being a good Muslim is like projecting a particular kind of identity. And these days, even uh, non-Muslims are buying that. So when they want to show a typical Muslim in a Bollywood movie, he has a beard and a cap, a skull cap on his head. Sherwani. Or, or a Sherwani is reciting Urdu poetry. Or in Western culture now, hijab is the only way, the quickest way to project a Muslim is to find a woman with her head covered. So this is about identity markers and Islam has been reduced to that. Uh, that's why I like the mystical interpretations of Islam. I and mean, that's why I like Ehsan, because Ehsan is not about externality. To me, the simplest definition of Ehsan is interior decoration. You're decorating and embellishing and beautifying what is inside yourself. And that can come from actions and not from externality. So what Islamic resurgence has done in the last 150 years 
is created a tremendous demand among large segments of the Muslim population for symbolic Islamism or symbolic Islam in the public sphere, have green flags, have la ilaha illallah written on the flags and, you know, so just tell everybody that we are Muslims and force it on others. And this idea of interpreting an Islamic society as one where Sharia is implemented, which means essentially where Sharia is forced on other people. This whole idea is about not about bringing happiness or welfare or progress in societies, but it is about creating rigid society where a particular ethical code is enforced upon everybody else. And as a result of that, there is a distortion of what Islam is, because that is not what Islam really is. The Prophet, peace be upon him, never forced Islam on anybody else. The Quran also does not recommend that we include compulsion as part of dawah. And But by creating this demand, we also created a global divide between Muslims and non-Muslims. And today we are witnessing a backlash. When I see what the Hindutva movement is doing in India, I see them mimicking Islamists. Islamists wanted an Islamic state in Pakistan. Now Hindus want a Hindu state in Pakistan. Islamists try to force Islamic law on Hindus and others in various parts of the world. Now Hindus want to force the cow on Muslims everywhere. They have their own conception of what their religion is and they want to force it down. So they are not behaving in any different way than what Islamists have been doing, whether it is Iran or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or, or other places where Islamists have come to power. So there is a backlash against Muslims because Muslims have chosen to divide the world into Muslims and non-Muslims as a result of this revivalism. And so now in a very strange way, non-Muslims are all banding against Muslims and trying to erase Muslims, whether it is the Muslim ban in America or whether the Rohingyas are being kicked out of Myanmar or the takeover of Kashmir to eliminate the Muslim majority identity. of So there is this backlash, and I think this backlash against Muslims is a direct response to the identity politics that Islamists have forced on the world in the last 100 years. So in your book, you dedicated an entire chapter basically deconstructing Islamism and Islamists and their ideology. And... To me, it seems, I read your chapter, and it's something I think about quite a bit. I've come to the conclusion, I want to hear your thoughts on this, that Islamism, or the phase of Islamism, in let's take it back to the 70s onwards, has sort of derailed modern Muslim social, political, economic development. Prior to that, and you begin with the rise of independent Muslim-majority nation-states in the post-colonial era, that wasn't the case. People were, it seemed as if people were comfortable with their Muslimness and adopting what we call secular conceptions of the state and society. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. See, if you look at it from a purely developmental perspective, today we talk about the tremendous development of East Asia. We talk about Japan, Hong Kong, South Korea, and China. Singapore, per capita income was $100 in 1966. Now it's a cash-rich country with literally billions of dollars in, uh, in reserves. They don't know what to do with that much money they have. And you can see the progress of China, etc. So there is this, this awareness of how these countries and the phrase Asian tigers is very prominent. But if you noticed in the 1950s, both Egypt and Pakistan were also seen as Asian tigers. 
And both countries were pretty democratic-leaning, maybe secular, definitely. But the Islamist turn in both those countries has clearly undermined it. They have ceased to be Asian tigers. The trajectory shifted. The country went away from achieving genuine, shall we say, materialistic markers of development to symbolic markers of development, and that is replaced by Islamization. So growing a beard and wearing a turban became signs of progress, rather than uh, reducing the amount of uh, outdoor toilets or improving the quality of the citizen's life. If this is the kind of life that Muslims want to have, then they are going to continue to have that. But there is no consensus. While there is a segment of Muslim society where they do want progress, uh, they want to be like other countries where they have freedom of thought, freedom of culture, they want to have material comforts that modernity is willing to provide, and they also want to keep their religion and their identity. But the Islamists have created a kind of a bifurcation. And by trying to do that, they have tried to impose a way of living which may have been fashionable, say, a thousand years ago, but may not be compatible today. So I have a feeling that the rise of Islamism in the last hundred years, where it became an alternative to anti-colonialism, and then it became an alternative to development after decolonization, has really prevented Muslims from having a serious conversation of what kind of states they want to live in and what kind of governance they want. If you look at the surveys that are done across the Muslim world, it shows that about 85% of Muslims want democracies. To me, it rings hollow because if such a significant amount of population wants democracy, then why don't we have democracies? It's not clear what we want. And even after the Arab Spring that you see, I mean, there were some attempts towards democratization, but that also collapsed because most of the post-Arab Spring governments were then again hijacked by Islamists. And so we had a different trajectory. The Muslim Brotherhood now talks about pluralism, but look at the constitution that they wrote. The word pluralism is nowhere in the constitution that Islamists wrote for Egypt. They did not make democracy the most desirable goal for the society, nor did they talk about the importance of welfare. So I have a feeling that while Islamism has worked to provide Muslims psychological comfort in an era when they are not the best of societies, by saying, okay, I may be pathetic today, but you know what? My great-grandfather was great. And that is the only comfort that the Islamists have provided to Muslims by reminding them that we were great again, great in the past, and trying to sell them the dream that we will be great again if we just return to our religion. Religion as an instrument of development, this is the model that the Islamists have presented, and it has failed again and again and again across the Muslim world. So we need to return to something else. We need to go away from this and go towards asking ourselves, what is good governance? And what is the role of government in the society? Is the role of government in society to monitor what I believe? Is the primary goal of the government to decide what I do in my bedroom? Or is the primary goal of the government to provide me with an intimidation-free environment where I can self-actualize myself whether as a scientist, a chess player, a soccer player, or a philosopher. And I think that is the conversation that I want to trigger with my book.
So this brings us to another question. It almost seems like Islam is being forcibly inserted by Islamists and other orthodox groups into the realm of human activity, human collective activity. You talk about governance, good governance. What is it that Islam says about good governance? Is there like, is Islamic good governance, if we can use that phrase, I'm not sure that's even an accurate phrase. Is it any different from, let's say, good governance in the United States? Well, let me give you an idea. Just yesterday, a gentleman was pitching to me the idea of a major Islamic university which is being developed in the United States and was talking very positively about it and was basically trying to solicit funds for it. It's on the West Coast in California. So I said, what's so great about this university? And the only thing that he was able to tell me was that there's gender segregation in the dining halls. That is to him a great Islamic university where genders are segregated. I found that very strange because I work for a university and we have constantly doing strategic planning and our goals are to get more patents, to have more research, to have new laboratories. So we measure success of a university is by its research output, not by gender segregation. So that is the problem, I think, because even our universities are working towards creating an identity. Recently, a country spent more than $100 million building a mosque on the East Coast. It's fabulous. It's beautiful. It makes people look at it and say, wow, what a great thing. And then that's it. And I was looking at it and I say, $100 million if it was a laboratory doing research. So that is, I think, the, one of the problems. People might say that what I'm advocating is materialism and not spirituality. But Islamism is also about the dunya, not about the akhirah. They are talking about the dunya, about making Islam great in the dunya. So if you are talking about making Muslim societies independent, Muslim societies free from domination by other countries, Muslim populations uh, free from massacres and occupations and genocides, then you need to have them to be materially strong. And materially strong societies, as you can see in the world today, are those which are doing economically well, like China, or who are also both economically well and democratic, like the United States and, and other Western European countries. What Muslims don't understand is, while they acknowledge that the Muslim world needs to be revived, in comparison to the West. How do we know that the Muslim world is in a bad shape? Maybe this is great. The only way we do that is by looking at the relative lack of power of Muslim countries vis-a-vis non-Muslim countries. And so we want revival so that we have more power. Well, then there are pathways to that power and that domination which Western countries have followed, which are not Islamic. You want to become like America, then maybe you follow the path that America took. Why would you want to follow the path that the Taliban are recommending in Afghanistan? Or going and trying to follow the religion that is being practiced in Senegal or Mauritania or Saudi Arabia? They have not become powerful societies. They have never been powerful societies. So there seems to be tremendous logical inconsistencies in this idea of Islamism. And so... I try to point out in the books that what they have achieved is completely derailed the trajectory of the development of Muslim societies. And we have become a societies who are aspiring for symbolism, imposing a law. Now that Sharia is the constitution, it is an Islamic society. Really? There is injustice? There is poverty? There is inequity? How is it Islamic? 
So the idea of what is Islamic is also becoming very meaningless in this world. We need to have a conversation about it. It almost seems like it's the word Islamic is being forcibly affixed in front of conversations as like almost like a prefix that we need to say Islamic this or Islamic that to feel good. Yeah. Look, it is like talking about Islamic dating. There is now Islamic uh, speed dating that you can participate in at ISNA conventions looking for a spouse. It's like the, I don't know what is Islamic about it. Maybe the tablecloth is green. I don't know really what is Islamic. It's the same model as it. Maybe everybody else who's participating in it is at least uh, self-confessed Muslims. But I also feel that Islamists have given a wrong impression of the Islamic past. So in one of the chapters, I try to show that there are more than one way of having what we would have called as an Islamic society or an Islamic state. So I introduce five archetypes. So I look at the work of Al-Farabi, who was an Islamic philosopher. Al-Farabi wanted to create a virtuous republic which was beyond democracy. and But he did recognize that in order for virtue to thrive, you would need freedom in societies. So we have a Farabi's way, a philosophical way of thinking of virtuous republic. And then you have the Mawadi version, which essentially is what the Islamists today have bought. It is like this. If you look at the Muslim Brotherhood and Jamaat Islami, I think they have adopted Al-Mawadi's concept of the caliphate as the concept of the Islamic state. It was new when Al-Mawadi did it. He articulated that to keep the Shias out of power, essentially legitimize Sunni caliphates, even in the absence of genuine power. And I think the jihadis or groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda have adopted the Ibn Taymiyyah's conception of what is not so much of an Islamic state, but what is Islamic governance, Islamic government. So these are the two models which are dominant, but these models have never actually been dominant in the history. They were both, while definitely Mawadi was in the court, Ibn Taymiyyah was an outsider in his own society. His ideas were never dominant in his time. And then there are two other ideas that I identify in my discussion. And one of them is that I took a look at Sheikh Saadi, where he advocates Islamic virtues, but not in an overt fashion where it is imposed, but encourages people to aspire for virtue both in life and in governance, and aspire for virtue both in the governors as well as those who are governed. And that is what I think Muslims need to do. What we need to do is to have a secular state where the government is has no religious preferences, but provides freedom to everybody. And religious groups are welcome to advance public policy recommendations which are based on their religious values. Or their interpretation of Islam. Yeah, whatever their interpretation may be, as long as the policy serves the welfare of all people, and it is democratically voted for, I'm all for it. And I think that when you have a free society, this hadith that the ummah will never agree upon error becomes truly meaningful when the ummah is free to choose. And so the reason why the Islamists want to force their brand of Islam on Muslims is because they know that Muslims will never accept their version. their version of Islam because it is not appealing. And the idea that Islam is universal to me is, if it is a universal religion and universal values, then it should be appealing to all people. 
And I find it fascinating to me that the idea of democracy appeals to Hindus, to Buddhists. Look at people in Hong Kong today demanding democracy and Christians and Jews. But the idea of Islamic State where the ruler has to come from one particular tribe <laughs> that is the Quraysh of Saudi Arabia, how will that model appeal to Jews or to Hindus or to atheists? It wouldn't ap- appeal There's to nothing, Muslims. It doesn't appeal to me either. There's nothing universal about it. To me, it looks like a fraudulent attempt by a particular tribe to impose its hegemony using religion. The idea that I can never be a caliph because I was not born in a particular tribe tells me that this is not religion, this is tribalism. So this idea of creating a caliphate and imposing a particular law, I think this is a pipe dream. And the very fact that it has not survived, even the the Khulafai Rashidin lasted for 30 years and nothing else. The first four caliphs yeah, after the prophet. It. After that, the model has not survived. Even during that time period, we yeah. see anarchy, chaos, during the time of the Khulafai Rashidin. It's, there's a problematic way in which Muslims have sort of memorialized that time period. In the book, I talk about something that I call as four freedoms. And uh, one of the freedoms that I argue is that an Islamic society cannot be truly Islamic if it does not allow people the freedom to be apostates. If you're not free to leave Islam and if you're forced to become a believer, then it's nothing true. There's nothing true believer about you. I also talk about the freedom to do ishtihad, which is to reinterpret religious texts and freedom to participate in governance. But I think there is one freedom that is very important, which is the freedom to disagree and question past ijma, past consensus. To me, I consider myself as a scholar of Islam. As a student of Islam, I've written five books on this subject, hundreds of articles. I don't care who considers me as a scholar or not. I teach Islamic studies Every year for the last 20 years, I've been teaching it. Some conservative Muslims will say, no, you're not, because you've not gone to a madrasa or, or whatever. But the point that I'm trying to make is, as far as I'm concerned, the consensus of Islamic scholars is not a consensus if I don't agree. So the consensus is already broken, and there are thousands and thousands of Muslim intellectuals and scholars in the world who disagree with past interpretations. And if we do not have the freedom to think about our faith critically, to question the past ijma, we will never progress. I can guarantee you that. We will never progress as a society. We will never have an intellectually vibrant community. And definitely there will be no democracy in a society where ghosts dominate our thinking. Dead people who died a thousand years ago, their opinion and their agreements are sacred. Now, to me, what kind of a society would that be? So I think we need to fundamentally rethink how we talk about Islam, how we conceptualize Islam, and how we bring it into the public sphere. And increasingly, we are being challenged. For the last 30, 40 years, we were challenged about the role of women in the public sphere. Now we are being challenged about the role of non-Muslim minorities and what their status will be and role will be in Muslim-majority societies. Will they ever be treated as equal citizens And then there are new lifestyles which are also challenging the past opinions. So to me, it is very important that Muslim societies will never be able to govern efficiently or effectively without emergence of a free, vibrant, and vigorous public sphere. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, Islamic State, Islamic governance, uh, Islamic governments. Is there such a thing? Look... I ask because government to me, and reading your book, you talk about good governance. 
it has no religion. When my father came to the United States in 1996 for the first time, he was living in Saudi Arabia. So it was very interesting that he came from Saudi Arabia to the U.S. And he looked, I took him to look at my universities and he saw these tiny little ramps. He said, what are these ramps for? And my father is a civil engineer. He was a civil engineer and he's asking me what those little ramps were for. I said, Dad, that's for wheelchair access. He said, oh. And then we walked into the building and then we went to the bathrooms. And then he came out and said, why is this one bathroom big? I said, Dad, that guy who came in in the wheelchair, he needs to have a bigger bathroom because his wheelchair goes with him. And then we went upstairs and he was looking at the door and he was looking at my name on my office. And he says, what are these dots? I said, my name is written in Braille. So the students who are blind can know what the office number is and whether they've come to the right office. And he was stunned and he says, oh my God, in our countries, we treat handicapped people as useless. But here, the country is bending backwards to accommodate the handicapped. This is 1996 or 95 when he came to visit me. And then he said, this is the true Islamic state. And he was contrasting it with his experience in Saudi Arabia. And that is what I want to argue. If we say that the caliph has to be compassionate and the caliph has to be justice, just, I mean, we think of justice and compassion as individual qualities. No, they have to be social conditions. When we say there is compassion in the society, we need to ask ourselves, where is that compassion? Is there forgiveness in the society? When we talk about social justice, it is a social condition. Is there equality and equity in the society? So to me, that is what I think a true virtuous republic would be, a virtuous society. Now, as far as Islamic society is concerned, it is like this. This is one of the effects of Islamic resurgence and Islamism that we have made Islam a prefix. So, for example, when Islamophobes talk about Islam, they talk about radical Islam, militant Islam. So they add prefixes to Islam. Muslims do the opposite. So Islamists will say Islamic economics, Islamic state, Islamic dating, Islamic this, Islamic date, and uh, Islamic social sciences, for example. Like, what is different? So do we have an Islamic calculus? So if we were to create a plane, an aeroplane with Islamic science, would it fly differently from a regular plane? So we just created a prefix and we sell this idea and Muslims who are thirsty for it will give you money. And so Islamists have basically been hoaxing the Muslim community for a long time now, more than 100 years, taking their money, mobilizing them for politics. Islamists should just be treated like counter-cultural political elite of the Muslim world. To understand that, look at India. India was dominated by the Indian National Congress. The alternative party could not find a foothold because they didn't play a big role in the independence movement. So guess what they did? They lashed on to the religion and so created Ram Rajya and Ram Janmabhumi issue and spread across and created the Hindu movement. Islamists are also like, they are the non-post-colonial elite of the Muslim world who want power and they have used Islam as a vehicle to go after the secular elite who had come to power using decolonization as their instrument of power. So that is what has happened. We should not treat Islamists as religious. They are just another political party and we saw how they performed, especially in Egypt. The Muslim Brotherhood behaved no differently from any other political party 
in third world countries, just as corrupt, just as trying to monopolize power, playing the same dirty tricks that the others tend to do in democratic societies. But coming back to this idea of the Islamic State, there is a fundamental flaw in how Islamists read history. They privilege the first four caliphs as the Islamic State. That is their model. And I wonder why the Prophet, peace be upon him, is not the model. There's nothing in the Islamic State, in the Islamic literature, which says we have to follow the first four caliphs. The Sunnah is the Sunnah of the Prophet that we need to follow. And he has 10 years of governance in Medina. Why don't we take that as the model? So in my book, I argue that the Medinan state should be the role model that we aspire for in order to seek governance and not the role model. The Khulfai Rashidin, the only thing that I like about it is they were adaptive and innovative. They innovated every time. Look at each caliph is elected in an entirely different way. So to them, there was no following the past. They just did what they felt was necessary for them. That is the lesson if Muslims learn from the Khilafah, that is great. But what we can learn from the Medinan state are three or four things. Number one, the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not rule without consent. So the constitution of Medina is not just a constitution, but also a social contract with the citizens of Medina. They gave their consent to Prophet Muhammad to govern them, so he ruled them by their consent. He also rules through consultation. So constitution, consent, and consultation, I call this the three C's of Islamic governance, are very important. And none of that is advocated by the contemporary models of the Khilafah or the Islamic State. What Jamaat Islami and Muslim Brotherhood have done is they have selectively embraced modernity. So, for example, they accept procedural democracy, but not democracy in its full sense. As a norm. Yes. They do not believe in democracy as something that is fundamental to our values, but as a procedure to resolve conflict or who should be the... Utilitarian. Yes, very procedural, not substantive. And the second thing is that... The models that they aspire for are not the models of the Khulfa Rashidin. There's nothing about the constitution that the Ikhwan wrote in Egypt is like what the Khulfa Rashidin were practicing. So they are adopting modernity with a symbolic protection of Islam. So I think if, if the Muslim Brotherhood had the opportunity to continue to govern Egypt for, say, now nearly seven, eight years or 20, 30 years, it would be like a weak democracy with authoritarian instinct. It would probably look like Turkey today. That is what it would be. That, yes, there would be procedural democracy, people would be elected and people would be thrown out, but certain aspects of religion would be enforced on the population, so there would be partial democracy. And therefore, there will be partial progress and partial development in the society. They will not be the most powerful communities. They will not be the, the most prosperous one because there will be constraints on intellectualism, constraints on free thinking in the society. But they would certainly not look like Saudi Arabia did under the first, second, third, or the fourth caliph. And talking about the caliphal model, there is an absence of critical thinking. When, even when you look I at was going to ask you that. Do we need caliphs? Do we need this nomenclature, which is extremely medieval, and which, are, which is a construction of certain time periods? Well, since most of the Muslim world are bilingual, so to speak, right? 
big and use terms like rice, etc. And I'm okay with that. The terms are not that important. What is important is... I'm not talking about terms. I'm talking about these ideas that create conceptualizations yes. that harken back to a past. So if you have an elected head of state or an elected head of government, you can call him caliph if you like. However, if you're going to say that he is uh, ruling in as a shadow of God, <laughs> or he is the successor of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and therefore, so for example, people take uh, Hazrat Umar's uh, decisions as part of the Sharia, like praying 20 rakats, Tarawi, for example, because he's a successor of the Prophet, so some of his decisions are enshrined as divine law. So if we are going to create a caliph of that kind, then I think it's going to be extremely problematic. It would be essentially a theocratic state and not a democratic state. But I think one of the questions that we need to really ask is, is Islam a political ideology or is it a reservoir of values? That is the most fundamental question. And in this book, I try to argue that Islam is a reservoir of values from which we can articulate different interpretations of law, we can have different manifestations of society. And as long as we stick to the universalist aspects of Islam, which and also minimalist, be very parsimonious in how we identify what are universal values, the better off we will be, the more freer societies we will have. There is a fear of freedom in Muslim culture. There is a profound fear of freedom in the Muslim culture. This fear is stifling our progress and our growth. And that fear is the cause for the perpetual instinct for authoritarianism in Muslim societies. A lot of the oppression, a lot of suffering that you see in the Muslim world comes from this fear of freedom. And, uh, and I, think, I think we need to get over that. Look, we, can, you know, you have thrown out so much, and I'd like to continue this conversation, uh, you know, until both of us are blue in the face, but we can't do that. And so we're going to have to stop here. But before I do that, what is it that you want people to take away from your book, very briefly? It is very different. I want people to live in a state of Ahsan, which is to live life as if you have made eye contact with God, you know. He is both shahid and mushar. He is both witnessing and he is one who is witnessed. So what does it mean to live life as if you have made eye contact with God? It is to live life in a state of bliss, profound joy, profound happiness, and at your best. Be at your best, not just in behavior, but also in everything that you do. So that's why the Prophet ﷺ said, you know, Kataba Allahu ala kulli shay. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded that we do beautiful things in every sphere of life. So if beauty is commanded in everything, so why not in governance? Striving for excellence. But with aesthetic aspect of it. Excellence can be cruel, but I want it to be beautiful. So if we were to somehow translate the spirit of the Taj Mahal into governance. So what would that look like? That is the question that I really want to grapple with. Well, thank you so much, Muqtadar. You know, your book is a great contribution, and I'm sure you will continue to write on this. Uh, folks, that was Professor Muqtadar Khan. Please go out and buy his book if you haven't. Islam and Good Governance, A Political Philosophy of Asan, And please... 
stay in touch with the, the Center for Global Policy, visit our, our website, www.cgpolicy.org, for more work from him and our other scholars. This is Kamran Bukhari with CGP's Lodestar, signing off for now. Take care.